the word of God where it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Ben. It's uh, always a great encouragement with Easter Sunday, isn't it, to remember the resurrection. I wonder how many of you have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah, a few, yeah. Uh, We watched the movie just recently, Robin and I, and it's a war movie worth watching, in my opinion. Um, uh, Spoiler alert here. So that uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you'll hear a little bit about it. The real Hacksaw Ridge soldier, Desmond Doss, joined the US Army as a combat medic in, right near the end of Second World War because he believed in the just cause of World War II. Um, but he also, as a committed Seventh-day Adventist, was utterly committed to not taking life. He was a Christian, and he didn't believe in taking human life. So he had this twin sort of conviction. So despite severe ridicule and beatings from his fellow trainees and uh, unjust treatment by his superior officers for being ludicrous enough to seek exemption from weapons training. He persevered and graduated and because he believed that Christ wanted him to serve his country and to save lives. So he went into the bloodiest battle of World War II, the 82-day Battle of Okinawa, between April the 1st and June the 22nd, 1945, with no gun. Over the space of two days and a night, when all his fellow soldiers and his fellow medics had obeyed orders to retreat, Desmond Doss remained on the field of battle and he saved 75 wounded men, including some of the very men who had bashed him up and ridiculed him and also some Japanese soldiers. All through the night and into the next day, he single-handedly lowered man after man down a cliff face 
to safety, praying, one more, Lord, just give me one more. And he'd, after he'd lowered one down, he'd scrambled off until he, amongst all the bodies until he could find someone that was still breathing, seemed to be alive, and he'd take them back and lower them down. And all through the night, these wounded soldiers just kept appearing at the base of the cliff. And the medics who were working back at base camp couldn't get over it. They said, where, where are all these blokes coming from? And they started to ask those who are able to say something and they just would limp out the words and say, Dos, sir, Dos. The entire unit was ashamed and astonished by his valour and was forever grateful for this honourable, Christ-like medic serving among them. Dos was awarded, Desmond Dos was awarded the Medal of Honour by President Harry S. Truman. And it is clear that he was motivated by his faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll put it right out there now and say this, devotion to Christ is the only motivation worth having. Devotion to Jesus Christ is the only motivation in life that's really worth having. What we see here in Mark 16 is a similar example of devotion to Jesus. There's three women and they're deeply motivated by love for Christ to go to the tomb and anoint Jesus' body. And each of them has their own story. Just have a look at the end of Mark 15 and you'll see these names also mentioned, not just in Mark 16. So you see in verses 40 and 41 and then 47 of Mark 15, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him him to Jerusalem were also there. And then verse 47... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They saw where he was laid. So these are the same women mentioned right at the beginning in in chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So they must have, as soon as the Sabbath was over on the Saturday evening, gone out to market, bought some spices and got ready for first thing in the morning and to head off and anoint Jesus' body. Now, it's interesting that these three women, it's helpful for us if we know a little bit about their story. Mary Magdalene was a Jewish woman from the fishing village of Magdala. That's where she gets the name Magdalene from. And it's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Her name is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels, more than most of the apostles. Mark and Luke record her being healed of demons in their Gospel accounts. In fact, if you look here in verse 9 of chapter 16, it says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. So I guess she was immensely grateful to Jesus. She'd been afflicted by demons who controlled her her life and Jesus cast them out 
and she could not be more grateful. There's Mary, the mother of James. We're not so sure exactly who she is. Some think she was Jesus' mother, Mary, or her sister even. Why you'd have two sisters the same name, not sure. She was probably the mother of that quiet disciple, Jesus the less or younger, rather than James the son of Zebedee. James the less, sorry, rather than James the son of Zebedee. And then there's Salome. And again, we're not entirely sure where she fits in, but many think she was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. So there's these three women, and they go to the tomb. What we know about them is that they were all followers of Jesus from Galilee. They'd helped to support him as he travelled and as he ministered. They wept for him at the cross, and they were first ones at the tomb on that Sunday morning. Just note this, they bought spices to anoint the body. Question, were they expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead? Answer, no. They asked among themselves, who's going to roll the stone away? Were they expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead? No. They weren't expecting Jesus alive and out of the tomb. They did not go with any other thought in their mind than to care for Jesus' body, which had been so hastily laid in the tomb on that Friday, and they wanted to go and do due honour and give a full and um, proper preparation for his body to lay him in the tomb. And it's helpful for us to understand just one little fact about Jewish burials. There were two stages to Jewish burials. The second stage was about a year later after decomposition had substantially taken place. So the body was anointed with oil, particularly if, if, if they were wealthy or someone specially recognised. They were wrapped in a cloth and anointed, and that's what the women went to do properly and thoroughly. And the first stage of the tomb, there would be like a platform and the body would just be laid out there and there'd be lots of air around. You'd have the stone rolled in front. But um, over the course of about a year, decomposition would take place and then the bones would be gathered and laid in what is called an ossuary, a, a little hole somewhere else, lower down in the tomb, maybe in the wall. And that would take place about 12 months later. So they were doing this on that first morning to prepare Jesus' body for the first stage of the burial. And they went out of love and respect for what they knew Jesus to be, a holy man of God. They went because they wanted to, not because they had to. We see here a beautiful example of loving servant hearts, doing something motivated by love. They're up bright and early, they're thinking ahead, they're making preparations, they're buying the, the spices and the oils. They're, they're showing by example what it means for faith to be motivated by love. They're doing it because they wanted to. No one else expected it of them. They were the last ones at the cross on Friday... The first one's at the tomb on Sunday. A wonderful example of Christian devotion. And it serves as a real heart check for us, doesn't it? 
as misguided as they might have been, not expecting the resurrection, they went because they wanted to be there out of love for their Lord. I wonder what we do that's really motivated by love for Jesus similarly, not because we have to, not because it's expected of us, but because we want to. Or are we always expecting Jesus to do things for us? There's no way they expected Jesus to be doing anything for him. They were expecting a body. They wanted to do something for him. Now, here's the rub, the real rub. Love is the only kind of motivation worth having in the Christian life because when faith works by love, it starts to bear fruit. But devotion, that kind of devotion to Christ will always be tested. It'll always be tested by life. It'll always be tested by the realities that we encounter. Their day was about to turn out nothing like they'd expected. What could possibly go wrong if you're leaving home at dawn to wrap a corpse? Imagine their shock. They loved the Lord. All the horrible sights and sounds and smells of the cross were still vividly with them. The two Marys knew exactly where to go in the garden. They'd watched as Joseph of Arimathea had taken Jesus' body down from the cross and, and wrapped it and laid it in the newly carved tomb. They knew what to expect. They could picture it. The stone rolled in front. And these women received multiple shocks. Think of it. The huge stone was rolled away. They must have thought, that's weird. That's not what we were expecting. And there was no body. That's mystifying. In fact, that's disturbing. That's, that undercuts the very reason why we're here. This, there was this strange young man seated just to the right of where Jesus' body had been. And that was just downright alarming. Who is this guy? And he's, he's dressed in bright white clothing. What's he doing there? They didn't know it at the time. We know from the other Gospels that what they encountered was an angel. The angel had been sent ahead of the women to give them a message. The angel had been expecting them. He'd been sent with this message for them to pass on to Jesus' chosen disciples, including Peter, who had denied him, that, that did them in completely. They, they just couldn't get their minds around this. And they fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered. So these are the facts as Mark presents them. And they're obviously, we're obviously meant to ponder them. Why would a day millions of Christians all around the world celebrate with such joy end up leaving these women trembling and bewildered why would that be their response because they were taken off guard it wasn't what they were expecting things were not as they fully expected them to be Perhaps you've had a day, something like that too, where things just didn't pan out as you expected. You might be uh, driving off to work, questions rolling around your mind, what to think about, and when you get to work, the day unfolds nothing 
like what you anticipated. Anyone had a day similar to that? Then you might like to spare a thought for a guy called Brian Heiss from Provo, Utah. This happened some years ago before mobile phones. Listen to his day. First, his apartment became flooded from a broken pipe in the apartment above his. So his apartment manager told him to rent an industrial-strength water vacuum cleaner because there was water everywhere. And that's when he discovered that he had a flat tyre. So he changed it, went inside again to phone a friend for help, but standing in water and grabbing the phone, the electric shock that startled him so much, he ripped the phone off the wall. So he, he couldn't make his phone call. He thought, I've got to go back down in the car and take things in hand. When he got down to the car, someone had stolen it. Before he actually got down to the car, I missed one bit, the, the water had swelled his door because he closed the door and he walked in and swelled it and, he, and someone had to come and kick the door in for him. And he gets down to the car, it's been stolen, there wasn't much petrol in it, he finds it a few blocks away and then he has to push it to the service station. So he pushes it to the service station. Well. He finally goes and rents his, his industrial strength vacuum cleaner, goes back, does the clean-up. That night he has a military ceremony at his university. So he injures himself severely when he sits on his bayonet that he'd inadvertently <laughs> left on his seat. The doctors stitch him up, as, you know, but nothing could resuscitate his four canaries because when he got home that night... The ceiling from all the water above had collapsed and squashed his four canaries. And then as he walked back into the unit and needed a new door and all of that, he slipped on wet carpet and injured his tailbone. Now, here's what he said. He said, he began to wonder if God wanted me dead, but just kept missing. And <laughs> we might laugh... I don't think Brian did. I'm still, I find it humorous, but it didn't happen to me, so I'm sure he wasn't laughing. And I don't think the two Marys were laughing either. The kind of day they were expecting turned out absolutely nothing like what they anticipated. And sometimes devotion to Christ results in unexpected shocks, even setbacks. We're motivated for the best of intentions. We love the Lord. And in setting about serving Jesus, things go at cross purposes. They unravel. You might notice at this point that Mark verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 are in italics. Uh, almost every version will have some kind of a line drawn across and a footnote indicating that these verses have probably been added in. Without going into all the detail, it seems highly likely that Mark's Gospel actually finishes here at verse 8 on that abrupt ending. But probably others thought, you can't have a Gospel finishing like that with the women fleeing, trembling and bewildered, and they've tried to supply something from the other details we know from other Gospels. There's nothing in there that contradicts anything. There's no, nothing inconsistent with any Christian doctrine there, and it's perfectly fine to have it. But I suspect what Mark was trying to do was to get our attention, to 
ending the gospel at that point was going to make us sit back. Everyone who reads it, sit back and think, where is he then? What's happened to him? He's not in the tomb. You couldn't think of a more powerful kind of gripping way to make you ponder the Christian message. The gospel of the servant king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for the fearful, for those who desert him or let him down, for men and for women, for boys and for girls, for the rich and for the poor. He's buried with the rich in, 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 you know, in the tomb, but he's so poor he doesn't have a tomb of his own. He's cared for by women who support him out of their own means. And all of them are humble enough to start to hear this message about Jesus. The gospel of the servant king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 How we respond to fear is always a litmus test of faith. And the lesson Mark wants us to learn when it comes to serving Jesus is he is risen. He's alive. And this means he's always previous. He, he had gone ahead of them into Galilee. We're told that. Uh, what part of the message here, verses 6 and 7, that the, the angel, the young man, has to deliver, he says, don't be alarmed. He knew they'd be alarmed. He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. And if you read through Mark's gospel, indeed all of the gospels, there's various points where Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's going to be buried, but on the third day I'll rise again. But they don't get it. Or what they do get is that he's going to be crucified and they balk at that and they say, no, no that, that will never happen to you, Lord. Mark is trying to say to us, when we're serving Jesus, expect the unexpected because he's a God who conquers death. Let me put it this way to you and explain. True devotion to Christ is fueled and refueled by the risen Christ. The risen Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Notice the language. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He is risen. He's not here. See where they laid him. He's going ahead of you. Just as he said. That's the message of the entire Bible. Abraham. He got a few shocks in his life. The unexpected happened to him. Moses, the burning bush. Take the shoes off your feet. The ground on which you're standing is holy and this voice speaks to him out of a burning bush. Total shock. Wasn't what he expected that morning when he got up shepherding sheep. Think of um, Mary, Esther. Mary got this almighty shock. You know, you're going to conceive and that which is born in you will be from the Holy Spirit and he's going to be the son of the Most High. And this, this isn't what I expected. Esther, 
you know, going before the king. And, and she says to Mordecai, pray for me. If I perish, I perish. So there's instance after instance after instance all through the scriptures. Paul, on the road to Damascus, I reckon he was going there and that morning he expected to round up Christians and to be able to take them back and have them imprisoned and maybe killed. And he himself gets arrested on the road to Damascus. The great I am has everything in hand. Nothing catches him unaware. Nothing spoils his plans. He prophesied hundreds of years ahead of time about these things. We heard on Good Friday, 700 years before the prophet Isaiah had given more graphic, detailed description of the crucifixion than we actually have in the Gospels, which say, and there they crucified him, and there they crucified him. But the description of his sufferings is given far more uh, emphasis and detail by Isaiah 700 years before it happened. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was prophesied. This didn't catch the Lord off guard. He knew what he was doing. That he was buried that he is raised up on the third day according to the scriptures. These things were prophesied. Consider Jesus himself telling the disciples about the resurrection. He said, as as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. And he's saying there's something about What happened with Jonah coming out of the fish is going to be indicative of what's going to happen with me. I'll be in the belly of the earth like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, but I'm going to come out. But they didn't get these things. True devotion to Christ is fueled and refueled by the risen Christ. He is ahead of us. God is always a previous God. He's always got his plans and his purposes. At the heart of the Christian gospel, we encounter things not as we might expect. The risen Christ rewards those who earnestly seek him, but he's also found by those who did not search for him. It seems like a bit of a conundrum, but that's at the heart of the gospel. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Jesus is always previous. But the question Mark wants all of us to face is always the one Pilate asked. What will I do with the one you call King of the Jews? What what will I do with him? When we encounter Jesus, what, what will we do with him? Will we fight him? Will we forget him? Or will we follow him? We know from the other Gospels that these women did eventually follow the commands and they went off and they, they uh, told the disciples and we've got it here in verses 9 to 20 uh, giving us a summary of what happened afterwards. So the women did recover from their fright. Their devotion to Jesus was not in vain. It was fueled and then it would be refueled by the risen Christ. There's one little detail here that I think we need to note. 
Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. Why and Peter? Well, we know that Mark, if you like, studied under Peter. We know that that Mark's gospel is really the most Peter-like of the gospels and there's a lot about Peter in the gospels because Mark uh, was discipled, if you like, by Peter. But there's something else here. It's Peter that had denied the Lord three times. Jesus had said, you know, the shepherd's going to be struck tonight and the flock's going to be scattered. And he said to them, but don't fear, I'll be with you. And Peter says, well, everybody else might forsake you. I won't do that, Lord. But then when push came to shove, when his devotion was tested, he failed. He denied the Lord even with curses. And Peter is mentioned here by name. Go ahead, tell the disciples, and Peter is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So it doesn't matter what kind of failures we might be in life. There is a message of hope. Jesus did for Peter what Peter failed to do for him. He died for him. Peter had said, though everybody else forsake you, I won't, I'll die for you, Lord. Little did he realise that he needed Jesus to die for him. And for you and for a world full of sinful and fearful and arrogant and Christless people, Christ has died for our sins and risen again. Consider the profound effect the risen Christ produced in Peter. And through his faithful preaching, we see in the book of Acts, just just some snippets from from the early uh, chapters of Acts. Acts 3. This is the healing of the lame man at the temple. When Peter saw this, he said to them, that's when the crowd gathered around after Peter had said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he said, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. God has raised him from the dead by faith in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. It's the risen Christ. Acts 4. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Later on in that same chapter, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. 
We're going to keep on talking, even under the threat of a beating and persecution. A little bit later in the chapter, when they're praying for boldness, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And finally, Acts 5, their holy defiance before being flogged. We must obey God rather than human beings for the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness for their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. The pointed emphasis in all these passages is Jesus' resurrection. He's not dead, he is risen. He's saying the lame man at the temple was healed by the risen Christ. What he had previously done when he was on earth, he continued to do, but he just did it from heaven. It's not by us, by our own power and godliness, this man stands before you like this. It's Jesus and faith that comes from him. So the pointed emphasis is Jesus. The active agent in the, is the living Christ, risen and ascended. One phrase stands out to me in this. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. They attributed the miraculous healings to somehow or other being with Jesus and Jesus had taught them the tricks of the trade. But they didn't realise it was Jesus actually doing it. They thought these fellows had done it. They took note that they'd been with Jesus but what they kept failing to grasp was that Jesus was still with these men. He was with them by the Holy Spirit because he'd risen. It was the risen Christ doing the works. He was only doing them from heaven instead of from on earth. So this beautifully illustrates the grace of God which lies at the heart of the Christian gospel. There's a little proverb tucked away in chapter 24 where doing a series on Proverbs at the moment. Verse 16 says this, Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise seven times. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. There's nothing perfect about us. The righteous fall seven times, but they rise seven times. That means they're not down and out. We wind up on our feet. He who promised is faithful and will do it. Our strength comes from on high. God is the active ingredient. Brian Heiss wondered if God was trying to kill him but kept missing. He needed to understand God doesn't miss. If God intended him dead, he would be dead. But what he was trying to do, I reckon, was get Brian's attention. Desmond Doss had a faith that said, one more, Lord, one more. Where is he looking? To the Jesus above. One more, Lord, one more. Seventy-five of them were given to him. These women 
also motivated by love for Jesus, eventually underwent a whole change of mindset and realised, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. Can you imagine their excitement? Can you imagine how much fear turned to joyful praise and wonderment? And said, wow, Mary Magdalene later on met the risen Christ and he spoke to her. Wow. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the message of the gospel. What will we do with this message of the gospel? This message sent from heaven. A message testified to by angels and by those who are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Rose again on the third day? That he's ascended to heaven and he's coming again? Well, if you believe these things, do as the women did. And, and start to go and follow him and tell people. Tell out my soul the wonders of the Lord. He is not here, he is risen. And God can use boys and girls. He can use mums and dads. He can use old and young. He can use males and females. He can use a whole diversity of people for his, to accomplish his purposes. The Bible is just full of it. And we've got a glimpse here where Mark, was, his goal was to make us pause and just sit back and think, what made the difference here? It's the risen Christ, the risen Lord Jesus. Devotion to Christ is the only motivation really worth having. It will be tested, but don't fear True devotion is fueled and refueled by the risen Christ. He is ascended. He's a living saviour. Let's pray.